Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, this week's podcast is a two-parter. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, we've had a lot of emails. Uh, a very busy time of the season. A lot of people thinking about snooker. But in general, I think there's uh, the, the interest in the game is up. And uh, we seem to have new listeners all the time. Yeah, quite a rise in, in listeners already this year. So thank you for that. Um, and, you know, it's supply and demand. If people take the time to write in with interesting thoughts, it's incumbent on... On me to uh, to take them seriously and read them out and give my thoughts as well. And we've had so many that this week's podcast will be split into two. So we've got one episode today and one on Thursday, if you can if you can bear it. Um, and the big sensation last week, and it was only a throwaway comment. I, I meant it. Someone wrote in, and um, anyway, th- th- there was a Dan Quayle was mentioned, the former U.S. Vice President, and uh, I mentioned Joe Swell, and I suggested if you've got any rhyming snooker players, let us know. Well, needless to say, <laughs> people have let us know, and. Uh, well, Paul Prescott, straight in, uh, just one, Ronald Reagan and Patsy Fagan, a perfectly uh, acceptable entry. Um, by the way, later on, the, the, as I record this, there'll be a new tournament announced. <laughs> we'll get to all the uh, the pressing issues later. Um, but Ronald Reagan and P- Patsy Fagan. Now, Paul started the, the carry-on business as well, which I think I'm going to draw a line under now, Paul, if you, if you don't mind, because it's uh, maybe run its course. But he did say that he consulted with his wife with regards to the assertion that Carry On Screaming couldn't be the best Carry On film due to Sid James not being in it. And Paul says, I thought it was a fair point, but she said it benefited by his absence. Controversial. Well, controversial lunacy would be the other word for it, Paul. But anyway, no, no, nothing against uh, dear Mrs Prescott. Now then, um, on the uh, subject of rhyming snooker players, uh, Victoria has got a long list here. Uh, she said, I hope this email finds you well. This has been said many times before, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Firstly, thank you for everything you do for Snooker, including this podcast, which is a must-listen every week. Well, this week might challenge that view, Victoria, by the time you get to the end of the second episode. The sh- I'm going to have to think of a cliffhanger um, at the end of the first part of this. Um, I'm not sure what that would be exactly, but um, anyway, we'll think of that later. Uh, she says, apologies, my first email is not of a more constructive nature. Well, wait till you see the rest. Uh, she says, however, your challenge to think of snooker players with surnames that rhyme with famous people was too tempting. I'll come to the following list. So here goes. Okay, so this is Victoria's list. Uh, Victoria King, this is. Uh, okay, so we've got Mark Selby. <laughs> this is a great start, by the way. This is a terrific start. Mark Selby, the most reverend Justin Welby. because he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, John Parrott, Jasper Carrot. Barry Hawkins, Richard Dawkins. Joe Perry, John Terry. Jackson Page, Nicholas Cage. Stephen Lee, Jack D. Mike Hallett, Timmy Mallett. Michael Holt, Usain Bolt. Tony Knowles, 
Camilla Parker Bowles. Now, if you just if you, you've stumbled across this podcast out of nowhere and you think, what is this? I'm re- <laughs> it's a list of snooker players who rhyme with famous people. I realise there are other things we could be talking about. There's a torment on, there's controversy raging all, all around us. But the fact is, it's a list of famous people whose names rhyme with snooker players. We continue. This is a great one. Billy Snadden, Matthew McFadden, Willie Thorne, Michael Vaughan, John Virgo, Michael Morpurgo, Graham Dot, Andrew Scott, Alex Higgins, Christopher Biggins, Mitchell Mann, Jackie Chan, Stephen O'Connor, Madonna, and then we've got... Uh, well, you've given us some some options here. I'll just pick pick one. Ryan Day, Theresa May, Joe Swale, Gareth Bale, Jordan Brown, Gordon Brown, and Victoria says, I realise this is first names rather than surnames, which led me on to snooker players who share surnames with British Prime Ministers, Brown, Wilson, Johnson, etc., but one for another day, I think. If you're still reading this, then thank you. I hope you and the rest of the listeners are looking forward to the snooker fest that is coming up over the next couple of months before we know it. The World Championship will be on us again. Indeed it will, Victoria. Thank you for that, and uh, maybe... Some of those names, the players that is, uh, will we'll feature. Now, John, on a similar vein, and there's a couple of uh, crossovers here, but he got in contact on Twitter. I don't normally read out tweets because, uh, well, I don't care to, but he ha- he's been kind enough to supply a list. So this is, again, <laughs> snooker players that rhyme with uh, players who played. And this seems to be at the World Championship, OK? So Crucible players. <clears throat> so we, here we go. Mick Price, Vanilla Ice, John Higgins, Christopher Biggins... Patsy Fagan, Carl Sagan, Graham Miles, Bill Giles. I have to say about this list, by the way, before I continue, never has the phrase one for the teenagers been more appropriate than this. There's some real characters here that anyone under the age of, well, certainly 45, will be wondering who they are. Bill Giles is one. But anyway, we continue. Tony Knowles, Peter Bowles, Mike Hallett, Timmy Mallett, Eugene Hughes, Rodney Bewes, Dino Kane, Cleo Lane, David Rowe, Alfie Bowe, Chris Small, Bobby Ball, Billy Snadden, Brian McFadden, Stephen Lee, Kiki D, Willie Thorne, Kenneth Horn. There's more, by the way. If you're thinking this is plenty, and we've already got my money's worth, there's more. Uh, Quinton Han, Gokwan, Oliver Lyons, Fraser Hines, Dominic Dale, Michelle Gale, Graham Dot, Tom Watt, Marco Fu, Michelle Rue, Jamie Cope, Bob Hope, Michael Holt, Ted Malt. Anthony McGill, Benny Hill, and finally, Joe Perry, Naina Cherry. <laughs> so there we are, and already we've spent longer than on this than we maybe should have done, but thank you very much uh, for those contributions. Um, let's let's change course and go into something controversial. Richie has written, uh, So Ronnie O'Sullivan is to miss the Welsh Open because of stage fright. I appreciate he has mental health issues, but how can he use stage fright as an excuse? Or at the same time saying he'll be sitting in front of TV cameras and running many thousands upon thousands of viewers. Why can't he just be honest with snooker fans and say he just can't be bothered to play in the smaller events? I bet he won't have stage fright come mid-April. I enjoy watching him play as much as anybody, but quite frankly I'm fed up with him. and look forward to the day he finally fulfils his promise and retires as he said he would 30 years ago. We can all get on with enjoying the snooker without this constant pantomime that comes along with everything he does or says. So Richie, you're very trenchant there. Um... Well, one thing I would say, Rishi, and I don't have any insight into um, his state of mind any more than anyone else's, but there is a difference between going out and being expected to perform at snooker and sitting in a TV studio. Uh, in a TV studio, you can't see the audience at home, um, and if you mess up, it doesn't really matter. Whereas on the on the table, there is a, a certain performance anxiety, which I think would be natural for someone in his position. 
That said, he did say at the, Ma- at the Masters he wouldn't be playing in the Welsh Open. So, you know, it was flagged up a, a couple of months ago, or certainly last month. Uh, but thank you for that. Uh, now then, let's... Uh, mm-hmm. We had so many emails, I'm just trying to choose... Ah, yes, well, John Dor- Doran. Now, of course, I had this dream about uh, John Higgins and Sean Murphy... Um, playing in the world final and uh, you know it was a dream that I had and uh, I, I reported I did it twice which is why I reported it and John says hope all's well I'm intrigued and somewhat alarmed by your recent dreams regarding the possible 2024 world championship final between John Higgins and Sean Murphy why alarmed you might ask well I believe there's a thing called the Stephen Hendry curse and that Sean Murphy and John Higgins have both fallen victim to it the Stephen Hendry curse befalls any player who having just won the world championship says in the interview after the final that their ambition is to match Stephen Hendry's record at that point, one of the snooker gods raises an eyebrow and says, well, we'll see about that then. Sean Murphy passed some such comment after winning the 2005 World Championship. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something along those lines. It was not just the eyebrow of a snooker god that was raised at the time, as I recall. Since then, Sean Murphy has appeared in three World Championship finals and lost them all. Then in 2011, just after winning his fourth world title, John Higgins made a similar comment about going on to match Stephen's record. And what happened? He's appeared in three World Championship finals since then and lost them all. In further support of this theory, I note that Ronnie O'Sullivan has never, as far as I know, publicly stated an ambition to match Stephen Hendry's record. He always played that down. Ronnie's faith in the snooker gods is very strong. Given such extraordinary evidence, (laughs) who can deny the existence of the Stephen Hendry curse? Well, whatever God directs your dreams, they deny it for sure. So for me, the stakes are high for World Championship 2024. Will the snooker god who administers the Stephen Hendry curse win out over your dream god? I wait with bated breath. Well... Thank you, John. Uh, the, the, Sean Murphy didn't quite say that. I was there uh, when he. What he said was, um, and he, when he qualified for the first time, I think he was eighteen. He said, "When I retire, I want to be mentioned in the same breath as Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry." So he didn't quite say he wanted to win seven world titles, but he was sort of intimating that, I suppose. Um, John Higgins, I don't remember saying that in twenty. I'm not saying you're wrong. I just don't remember it. Um, but you might be onto something there. Um, the Stephen Hendry curse, to add to uh, all the other curses in the game, that's just what we need. Now, Lee Wall, he says, thank you for providing your memories of Mike Smith in the last podcast. Since you got your big break in subbing in for Mike in 20, 2006, you picked up so much commentary work that you now probably watch more snooker than just about anybody. Therefore, I'm interested in your view on break-offs and whether the quality of them has improved recently. A couple of years ago, it seemed to be getting increasingly common for players to leave makeable opportunities at long reds after breaking off, so much so that Mark Williams started experimenting with rolling into the pack. Seems to me that this season the players have been more adept at not leaving an inviting long pot by not hitting the reds as thick and or getting the cue ball on the ball cushion or properly behind the ball colours. Do you agree this is the case? And if so, do you think the players have been spending more time practising their break-off shots? Has there been any discussion of this between the TV pundits you regularly work with? Well, thank you, Lee. Um, I'm not sure I've necessarily noticed that that the break-off shots have got better. It was a frame yesterday, Neil Robertson uh, knocked in a long red, won the frame off Jackson Page. In fact, Jackson Page, uh, I think it was the last frame, he played the, the Mark Williams break-off you refer to and he left a red to the middle. <laughs> it was a shambles, really, but um, he didn't lose the frame off that, but he, it kind of pointed to his state of mind. So I, I've got no scientific proof that the break-offs have got better. It's a very important shot, though. Um, the problem is, I mean, the players will tell you that, you know, sometimes the sort of the exact sort of difference in, in table conditions can make a, a difference. Sometimes they say the way the referee set the balls up can make a difference. Obviously, you know, human error is the biggest thing. Um, 
But it reminds me of an anecdote years ago, Mark Wilburn, fantastic guy, Mark. Um, of course, he's been well known as an, an ITV commentator and uh, Billy, well, Billy as champion. And he got to number, I think he got to number 17 in the world rankings. Anyway, he got invited into Pop Black, which was a big deal back then. I think Eddie Charm or someone hadn't entered. So Mark was the next, next sort of cab off the rank, as it were. And uh, he decided, he drew Steve Davis and he thought, right, I am going to, I'm, I'm not going to play one shot, i.e. the break-off. Leave Steve Davis, who at the time obviously was, was number one. I'm not going to leave him a long red and just play one shot on Pop Black. This is my big chance to get on Pop Black. So he spent three weeks practicing the break-off. There was a, apparently a kid who lived nearby and they, they would play every day and he would, Mark would practice the break-off against him until he perfected it. He got the cue ball in behind the green. So whatever else happened... Steve couldn't pop off of there. He would at least get another shot, okay? But, of course, he didn't think of one quite big thing. They got down there, and uh, the coin toss took place to see who would break. Steve won it, and he put himself in. And, of course, what happened was he broke off. He got Mark behind the green. Mark played out of the snooker, left a red on. That was the only shot he got. <laughs> so it, it's always been a big shot. 40 years ago, that was, and it's still, you know, a big deal. I suppose bigger than ever, because now we associate the game with being more attacking and, and heavier scoring. Um, so, it, put it this way, players don't, don't practice it, maybe they should. Um, players, I mean, Karen Wilson sort of found a different way of breaking off. People have experimented here and there with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's certainly a, a, an important shot. That's absolutely right. But of course, if you get it right, you know, from that, um, from that first shot, you can, of course, initiate a chance straight away yourself. So, it can work the other way as well. <clears throat> now then. Christian asks an interesting question. He says, I'm sure this has been asked before, or at least you described it on commentary, but that time I must have been absent. So I want to ask you, if you could explain in detail if possible, what are the referees exactly doing when they're checking for touching ball, when they're holding their hands above the balls? I just know it has something to do with the light, but nothing more really, and it just looks odd, of course, like a gesture used in clerical settings. Well, thank you, Christian. Uh, you've got the right surname. Uh, you've got the right Christian name for that. Uh, I'll edit that out. Um... Yeah, I mean, it, I, I don't really know is the answer. I guess it, it is the sort of changing light. The, the glare of the TV lights is quite bright, and you'd think that'd be an advantage, but close up, maybe you're just looking for a sort of different focus on it just to double check. The other thing is, I think there's a lot of things, not just in snooker, but in life in general, people see other things, people see other people do something, so they think that's the way to do it. For years, you go into a snooker club in the 80s, and people's middle fingers were sort of tapping, because Tony Mio did it on TV. <laughs> no one really knew why they were doing it, they just were. Um, but uh, it seems to be, uh, it's got to be something to do with the lighting, um, and yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I think that's the answer. Uh, any referees out there, let us know. We're going to take a break from the emails to discuss the Championship League last week. It was six days of it. Now, Judd Trump um, decided, and for understandable reasons, after the German Masters, decided not to take his place. He was due to come in in Group 4, so there was Groups 3, 4 and 5. Now, he left uh, Berlin, uh, the German Masters, one century behind John Higgins on the all-time list. I think it was 9.68 to John, 9.67 to Trump. And Trump, at the rate he was scoring, was the favourite to... Get to a thousand century second, obviously Ronnie and Sullivan first and, and well clear. Um, but th that has been completely tipped on his head because John Higgins, it was the other side of it, he got a call up. Ali Carter pulled out on the Saturday, so Higgins came in on the Monday and he ended up playing all three groups. Um, and he made 17 centuries, he made a maximum on the last day, the Saturday, won that group. Oldest player to make a maximum now, he's got that record back from Mark Williams at the age of nearly 49. Um, and just played brilliantly. And now he's had one of the Welsh Open already as I record this. He's on 986 
Trump is down on 967. So right now, John Higgins is the favourite. Clearly, I mean, Trump's not in the Welsh Open. John Higgins is the favourite to get to a thousand second, which kind of, in a way, feels right because obviously he's a, a contemporary Ronnie. I mean, Dr- Judd Trump's going to be by far the youngest player to do it, and he will do it pro- possibly this season, maybe early next season. Uh, he's coming into the Championship League as it stands in Group Seven, so he will play that potentially four days because if he gets in the winners' group, he gets another two. But of course, Higgins is in the winners' group as well. Higgins not in Saudi, but there's not a lot of frames to play there. Um, obviously, we've got the Players' Championship next week that they're both in. They're both in the World Open Tour Championship. It possibly will be settled by the World Championship. But regardless of all that, you know, John Higgins, I mean, he, that Championship League, you know, it, it's not always had the best reputation, but the players certainly like it because it's hard match play. And, and Higgins, I was talking to John and he said, basically his own table at home or in Glasgow where he plays in that unit with Steve McGuire and Anthony McGill, he's not in the best state. So when the call came, he kind of wanted to practice last week. It was perfect for him to come down to Leicester it's not quite the same though as practicing. People say it's pay practice. It's not true because practice you can choose your own time to do. And by if by five o'clock in the afternoon you've had enough, you go home. In this, you have to play when you have to play, and they're long days, and there's a certain routine to them. There's quite a bit of hanging around. Um, you have to keep your mind sharp. Not everyone, you know, some players late in the day they get kind of annoyed and they want to go home. But Higgins, his attitude was great. And he played great, and he came into the Welsh Open as favourite. We don't know how he's going to get on. He's won his first match. We'll see. But I was very impressed by how he played, and there's just a sense that something's coming. Now, I'm not talking about my dream. I, I, didn't, I certainly didn't bring that up with him. But um, at the World Championship, this is. But uh, I just get the feeling that this key part of the season, he's starting to play well. And, and uh, the other groups won by Mark Selby. He won the, the first group of the week. Um, and Neil Robertson also. He started to play well. Um, and, you know, I, I've worn against... Reading too much into it, there's no audience, there's short matches, it's a league format, etc, etc. But I also wouldn't dismiss it as being irrelevant. I mean, right back to the first Championship League, Ali Carter, um, 2008, he played in seven groups, he got to the World Final. It speaks for itself. Um, It's a bit different now, maybe, because there's more tournaments, so people are playing more. But you look at someone like Luke Purcell, who decided not to play in it, um, and, you know, he's lacking sharpness, that's just a fact. But anyway, that was the Championship League. Uh, It looks like the winner's group uh, may have to move... Because um, the players are flying out. The players who are involved in the Riyadh event at the moment, Mark Selby, uh, he's guaranteed to, to be in both. They'll be flying out on the, on the last day of the Championship League. So I imagine there may be some re- some re- rescheduling coming up. Now, one of the best things on the podcast in recent times is the amount of new listeners that are uh, getting in contact. So there's an email here. Hi from Ziggy, first-time email sender. I've been a huge snooker fan for over 40 years. And I can't get enough of the game we all love. Discovered this podcast about eight months ago, and I'm only about a dozen episodes short of having listened to nearly all 300. Wow, that's some, some effort, Ziggy. Probably will have, have done by the time you read this. Keep up the good work. We all appreciate it greatly. This email is to ask a question about the rule that points can only be scored once off the final black, and as a result of which, when a player pots the pink and he's eight or more points ahead, often doesn't bother with the black. Can the opposing player not concede the frame and force the black to be played out even though he can't win the frame. Now, you might ask, what's the point? And why would he do this? Well, here's an unlikely but possible scenario in which I think it would be justified. You're playing in a World Championship final, could be any final, really, and the frame score is 17 each, so it's the deciding frame. The frame score is 60-52 to your opponent after he pots the final pink, and you can't win as you're eight behind with only seven left. 
So either he lays his cue down and claims a win by eight points with the black still on the table, pots the black and wins by 15, or I pot the black and lose by one point. Now you might ask, why would you force your opponent to play the black when you've lost and you can't win? Assuming the black is not potable and has to be played out in a safety exchange, I would definitely force the play even if I can't win. Would I be allowed to do this? Remember, I can't win, but I, I do not concede. Why, you might ask. Well, if I pot the black, I lose by only one point. For the rest of my life, when asked about losing a world championship, I'd be able to say, yeah, but by the smallest margin possible. One point in the final frame. That would make it surely worth playing on, if allowed. To players like Ronnie, Selby, Trump, etc., they wouldn't be bothered, but for a lesser player who might never make a world final again, it would make sense. Can the winning player refuse to play and claim a victory, or does he have to play as long as balls are on the table and I don't concede? Well, thank you, Ziggy. I mean, a lot, lot's got to happen there to, to set up that scenario. Firstly, you've got to reach the world final and be 17 each on the last black, um, which, of course, did happen uh, between Dennis Tell and, and Steve Davis. Um, I think if you look at this, I mean, I understand the sort of what, you're, what you're saying, but it kind of would be poor form in a way to play on, wouldn't it? Because you're sort of stealing the moment a little bit from the winner if you insist on coming forward to pot the black. It's, not, it's the champion's moment, not the runners-up. Um, so just coming on, there was a, years ago, well not years ago, it was in the, in the pandemic, Ronnie <laughs> inevitably, he had this spell where he was sort of ludicrously playing on for snookers and, or just keeping the frames going because he said he wanted to practice during matches, which in itself is odd. Um, and he said that, anyway, he got down to one match and he, he attempted with just the black on, I think he was sort of 10 behind or something to keep playing and the referee had to say to him, no, the frame's over. Um, so I think it, if you think about it, Ziggy, it would probably look bad, really, if, if, the, if the other player came back. Because, like I say, the moment is for the winner. Um, and also, you, may, you might revise your opinion. If you get within a, within a point of winning the World Championship, that might haunt you for the rest of your living days. You don't know. Um, anyway, we'll, who knows? One day it might happen. Still on Ronnie O'Sullivan. This is a very loose link. Uh, bear in mind I mentioned him in passing there but Andrew Newman writes just listening to the latest podcast and Alyssa mentions the Ronnie O'Sullivan Mark Selby matches at the Crucible in 2014 and 2020 I agree, I agree these were two of the most significant matchups in the recent game and the final session of the 2020 semi was one of the most astonishing bits of sport I've ever seen Ronnie seemed to take the win at the end through sheer force of will Selby grumbled a little after the match about Ronnie's sportsmanship bashing the balls around rather than getting involved Intense safety battle, but to me, this was all within the spirit of the game. It was an example of one of Ronnie's defining characteristics: his fearless competitiveness. I'd love to see a repeat of that matchup in the final this year, even despite any prophetic dreams. <clears throat> Thank you, Andrew. Well, it could happen. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was unorthodox the way he played at the end there, but he is unorthodox, isn't he? I think uh, Selby wasn't happy. It's interesting. That is the. I think my theory is that is the worst match to lose in the season. That semi-final. It's the longest match in some ways because it's three days. I know the final in terms of frames is longer, but it's, it's over two days and it's the last match. You're not, you're not sort of tantalizingly close to the final. You're in the final. The semi-final is long. That Thursday, I mean, people have, have said, you know, it should be shortened, which I don't agree with, but you, you can feel, it feels a long way from the end on that Thursday because the payoff is the Saturday. That's, that's, <laughs> the build-up is the Thursday and the Friday is the sort of mid-act, second act of the drama and then the final act of the drama is on the, um, the Saturday. But the, th the Thursday you feel a long way from the end. So if you lose that match, having put all that effort in and you're not in the final, we saw Stuart Bingham actually when he lost to Selby, not happy. Karen Wilson wasn't happy when he lost to Murphy. But that's perfectly understandable. Um, it's a horrible match to lose. Um, and, you know, Mark Selby said what he said, and 
he may well stand by it. But in the in the, in the moments after losing a match like that, in that uh, way, perfectly understandable, really, what he said, I think. Now, our dear friend Dave Tyndall, he's a friend of the show, he says, I've been going to live football matches for over 30 years, mainly at Anfield to see Liverpool. But once I've ever caught or even touched the ball when it's been booted into the stands. In fact, it's never even come close to me until Trent Alexander-Arnold blasted one out of play against Fulham recently and it landed about three rows away from my seat in the Kenny Dalglish stand. This got me thinking, has a cue ball ever been caught by someone in the crowd? It would have to be sat close to the table, I guess, but it's possible a player could chip one into the air if attempting a deep screw. The other possibility is a player whacking the cue ball off the table in a fit of peak and lo and behold, this did lead to a catch in the semi-finals of last year's World Championship. Not a crown member, but referee Rob Spencer, who takes a superb, superb catch low to his feet as the cue ball loops his way after Luca Purcell smashed it up and off a cushion with his cue in frustration. Finally, that footage has partially scratched the itch, but I wondered if you or anyone has seen someone in the crowd take a catch. Maybe at one of those world finals in the 70s when the audience has sat on up to, up to beer crates close to the table. Uh, that, that footage of uh, <coughs> Rob Spencer, that's, I think that's Will Snooker's leading clip on TikTok. So <laughs> Rob is a TikTok star. Uh, and in fact, he's, Dave has sent the, uh, the footage. Um, I, I haven't seen that myself. I haven't seen a, an audience member catch a cue ball. But um, sometimes, I mean, Judd Trump would be the obvious example of this. When the players are sort of whacking the balls around at the end of frames trying to entertain, which is perfectly... Valid. It's the camera people I feel feel worried for, certainly their cameras. Because certainly the Crucible, the camera operators are very close to the table and they're expensive pieces of equipment, let's be clear. And, you know, if you're whacking the white or the, the, sometimes the black flies off the table, you know, that, a snooker ball travelling at that speed can hurt. This is the reason I don't go to golf tournaments. I'm always worried at a golf tournament, you know, the balls are flying around in the air. You know, you're going to get whacked on the back of the head by one. <laughs> you know, you can shout four as much as you want, but, the, you know, you, you might not have time to take cover. Uh, cricket as well, you know, when they whack the ball into the stand, it, certainly in 2020 matches, thinking, I'm just minding my own business here, I don't need this. Um, well, I've not seen it in snooker, but if anyone has, obviously the audience would have to be very near to the tail. I'm sure, obviously, in snooker clubs and whatever it's happened, but in, in terms of tournament play, I'm sure we would see the clip, we would have seen the clip, you know, it would have gone round, it'd be, be viral before that was a thing. But if anyone knows, do get in contact. Snooker scene podcast at mail.com is the address. Michael Waring writes, This might be considered as a pedantic rant, but then again, it probably is. Well, that's fine. That's what we, I'm looking forward to this, if that's true. Michael says, I have a group on Facebook called Amateur Snooker with over 50,000 members. Many seem to be confused over the term snookered and think it means that the striker cannot hit any part of a ball on. But the rules state the cue ball is snookered when a direct stroke in a straight line to every ball on is wholly or partially obstructed by a ball or balls not on. Whenever watching snooker on TV, I often hear towards the end of frames where a player needs to score more points than there are available on the table. Commentators say they need snookers. Most watchers would know what is meant by that, but the issue doesn't, does get confused when the striker can hit part of the object ball. Commentators often say that the striker is not quite snookered. It's no wonder then that there are there is confusion and sometimes arguments among amateur snooker players and fans who only watch on TV as to what actually constitutes a snooker. This is particularly relevant when considering whether or not a free ball is called after a foul. Other than sending commentators on a course about the rules, I doubt if anything will ever change, but it would be nice if it did. <coughs> well, this is a very niche, niche point, and I welcome it, frankly. Um, yeah, I mean, there's certain shorthands, aren't there? We, we, we use the term frame ball, and it doesn't mean that it is. It just means that's the frame that gets you safe. Your opponent then needs penalty points, and that's the, that's the other shorthand. We say snooker's required, but it's penalty points required. 
it, it can be in offs, it can be you know, miscue when you don't reach the it can be anything that gets you the penalty points. But it's just shorthand, and, and all sports have this sort of lingo um, that is used as a shorthand to explain to, to, to people watching um, kind of how it all works. So, although I, I take the point you're making, but I think I think most people actually, I'm not sure how much confusion there really is. I mean, you, you maybe know better, but uh, I think people kind of understand what it means. Um, but anyway, thank you for the, uh, the as you say, pedantic rant. I think that the term parsley snookered, by the way, is, is perfectly fine. I mean, I think you can't see the whole of the ball, but you can see part of it. You're partially snookered. I'm not sure that that's that confusing a term. Uh, mate, I don't know. It's hard to say when, you know, you're not looking from the outside. I mean, I'm, I'm wary of one, one thing. We do get, certainly on Eurosport, it's still happening because we're going to 60 countries. You get new viewers all the time. And some of the terminology um, that is used, as I say, as a as shorthand, as a matter of course, whether it's shorthand that's been around a long time or, or is sort of more recent, you can't assume everyone always knows all of it. The free ball is still something that we sort of get emails about. People are wanting to know why, what that is and how it works. So that is something, I think, to be mindful of, certainly. Now, I've had an email about the Championship League, and there'll be people out there saying, well, why didn't you read this out after discussing the Championship League? But I like to mix it up. <laughs> in other words, it's not planned properly. But Malcolm Johnston has uh, been good enough to write in, and he said, I'm just sitting down to watch Barry Hawkins versus John Higgins on the Matchroom channel. I'm struck with the quality of the play over the two tables. It reminds me of the lockdown period when Snooker took residence at Milton Keynes behind closed doors, which, to my memory, produced some of the best quality snooker I'd ever witnessed on TV. The easy nature the players treat the Championship League seems to result in fantastic scoring and all-round high standards of play. Although players re- seldomly speak during normal tournaments, it was refreshing to see Barry and Kyron Wilson share a laugh and a conversation after Barry had an awful mi- miscue uh, that he potted and screwed back ten foot. An awful... Is that miscue? Midcue, you said. Anyway, he said, I know ticket sales are part of the prize pot, but for my TV, but for TV, my question is, why don't the major broadcasters, BBC, ITV or Eurosport, Take this format as a time filler rather than some of the trash they air. Well, it's one in the eye for bargain hunt there, isn't it? He says, Snooker's as popular now as it's been since the peak times of the 80s and four channels. This format, in my humble opinion, showcases the player's full potential with the added bonus of no phones beeping, no sweet rappers, no cries of, come on, Ronnie, at any given opportunity. As a lifelong fanatic of Snooker, I really rate this format and wished it could be brought to the masses on terrestrial TV. And then he adds, still the best Snooker podcast available. Well, that's kind of you, Malcolm. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of Championship League. I'm not sure BBC ITV are going to give over their airwaves to show it. And actually, same with Eurosport. Um, it was on, it was on Free Sports until, until A, Free Sports became not free and then disappeared. I think it was replaced by Viaplay and, and, and their, their free channel, I think, disappeared as well. So at the moment, it's on, it's on Matchroom Live. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I like the Championship League a lot. It's a terrific tournament to work on. Um, very relaxed. A lot of gossiping goes on. Mm-hmm. Oh, you wouldn't believe the gossiping that goes on. Um, you find a lot of things out. Um, and, and not bad things, just, just things that maybe you haven't sort of been aware of. Um, but, uh, but yeah, th- th- thank you for, uh, for, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It is more relaxed, but I'll tell you something, it, it, it's also taken seriously. There was a frame John Higgins won against Karen Wilson. He needed two snookers and he must have played for 20 minutes. And this will go back to our previous email. He needed penalty points. Let's put it that way. He needed penalty points. He, but he got two snookers successfully laid and got the penalty points from them. But he could not have tried harder. If that had been the world final, John Higgins could not have tried harder to win that frame. So th- these guys are competitive. Yes, there's a bit of sort of laughing and joking. 
But the matches are serious. You do see heavy scoring um, because I think there's so many frames played. You know, you, players are kind of getting a groove. Um, you're not playing one match. You're playing guaranteed six. So we see some big breaks. Obviously, John Higgins had the maximum. Connor Wilson actually had a maximum earlier in the week as well. Uh, but there hadn't been one in that event for three years. It's not like it's every week you get them. Um, so anyway, I'm glad you enjoyed it, as I do. Now, the the, uh, the subject that refuses to die is uh, cigarette play snooker players. And, uh, you know, in more politically correct times, maybe this isn't an issue we should be addressing, but we don't mind breaking down barriers here. So <laughs> with players have, uh, people have written in with players uh, based on cigarettes. And Adam Fisher, who's a doctor, by the way, uh, <laughs> you know, you'd think that these people might have better things to do with the time, but we're glad to have you listening, Adam. And he said, uh, okay, these are the, uh, he says, sorry, David and listeners, I have to get involved with this. Here we go. So these are the, uh, the players, um, based on cigarettes. Here we go. Okay. Anton Hasakoff. That's a good one. <laughs> Anton Hasakoff. Cliff Fagburn. Ken Cockerty. Co- sorry, I'll do that again. Ken Cofferty. Okay. Nigel Bond Street. I think we had that one last week. Uh, John Player Higgins, Mark Super Kings, and my personal favourite, and one for the kids, Hossein Vape Vai. Neil Foles came up with, uh, uh, what was it, uh, Perry Rothmans. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> so, anyway, that, as I say, it's kind of refusing to die a little bit, that subject, but uh, thank you for uh, writing. We'll have one more on our first half of, the, of our special. Uh, and then, if so, your email, if you've written in and it's not been read out, it will be read out next time on Thursday. Um, and who knows, by then we might have had more flooding in. But we're going to end with Steve Madgwick. So uh, this is the cliffhanger, Steve, I guess I was promising. Maybe I should answer it next time, but that's, that feels, well, pointless, basically. Uh, Steve writes, I'm a long-time listener of the podcast, first-time mailer, but listening to this week's episode and discussion on various elements of commentary, I feel compelled to put down something I've thought and voiced a million times. When it comes to positional and tactical commentary... I'm not sure, in my mind, anyone has ever come close to a certain Dominic Dale. I absolutely appreciate Neil and Alan's input, as well as the glue that is your great self and Phil as lead commentators, but i found in recent years, regardless of a match that's been shown, I will choose always to watch if Mr Christopher is sharing his incredible insight. Now, it should be said that, uh, just jumping in there, Dominic's real name is Christopher, that's what that is a reference to. Uh, Rarely does he make a wrong call in predicting what's coming or what tactical piece of genius is required to get out of trouble or put someone in it. I find by listening to his commentary, uh, he's also by proxy managed to improve my own game from a tactical standpoint. Something I used to pay Roy Chisholm a lot of money for back in the 90s, but now get for free thanks to Eurosport and the Spaceman's vocabulary when and air. Thanks to this, over the years, Dominic has also become one of my favourite players to watch, and I'm so glad he's managed to remain on tour. I write this ahead of the Welsh Open, his potential match against Ronnie O'Sullivan, should the latter come to the held over first round, or indeed turn up at all. Wish him all the best on home ground. Yes, of course. Well, it, it's interesting now, actually, because uh, Ronnie isn't playing, as we know, and Liam Graham was beaten by Alfie Davis, who's the son of Anthony Davis, who's a former professional and a very good friend of Dominic's. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic now. Dominic's playing um, his pal's friend. Uh, sorry, his, his pal's son, uh, which is kind of kind of interesting. But anyway, Steve continues, this leads me to a question of which commentators outside of your great self would you attribute the most insightful knowledge and tactical nows to over the year? And do you have a favourite co-commentator to work on on this basis? Keep up the great work on the mic over both the sport and the podcast too. I mean, you're trying to trap me there into falling out with people, aren't you, by saying who's my favourite. But I'll answer that honestly. I think they're all good. I think all the people I work with are good. They're all different. Dominic, you're quite right, is brilliant. He has superb timing. And that comes down to vocabulary. He's able to 
sense the right amount of words in that space in whatever point of the frame it is. He can anticipate, okay, I've got this amount of time to say what I need to say, and he has the vocabulary and the intelligence to get the words into that gap. Um, and that really is, is, is the art of sports commentary in many ways, certainly in a sport like snooker where you need silences to sort of build the drama. Um, but you know, there's, a, there's also a reason obviously why people like Neil and Alan get so much work, you know, because they're really good, basically. I mean, and, and that applies, I think, to, to all the guys, you know, they're all snooker people. Um, they all bring something different. Dominic, I suppose, Dominic, Neil and Alan, in a way, are linked by the fact that they were never world champion, but they were all top players. They all won big events, so they played at the top of the game. They played in all the big tournaments. They understand the pressures of playing in them. They have, they've had trophies um, that they've won, but they've also maybe been able to take a step back as well and sort of look at the game from a different view. Obviously, Dominic is still playing, but he's always had a kind of interest in the history of the game, which not every player certainly does. I mean, cues, he knows everything about. So he, he kind of has the knowledge of other areas of the game that maybe other players are not interested in. Um, and yeah, he, he, what he's very good at is, I mean, he's, he's very easy to work with Dominic because he kind of does, and he, he's doing some sort of league commentary of his own at the Welsh, but he understands what his role is. And there are certain rhythms to frames. If, for example, someone's on a century, the kind of convention is the century ball, as it were, and it's not written down anywhere as a rule, but the sort of convention is the lead commentator will mark that moment by saying something. Um, and Dominic will kind of back off and, and allow that to happen. Um, same with maybe even frame ball or certainly the end of the frame. He will have finished whatever he's saying in time for the lead commentator to do that. So, you know, he's, he's an eccentric character, a very interesting character. I've had another email about him, actually, which I'll read out uh, next time. Maybe that's the cliffhanger, the Dominic Dale cliffhanger. Um, but he's just a great character in the sport, isn't he? he? You know, he's a bit of a one-off, but in a good way, and very enthusiastic. Um, so I, I, I enjoy working with Dominic. You know, he's a, he's a good bloke and, and just, you know, great sort of. In some ways, although he's an eccentric, in some ways he's a sort of typical snooker character. You know, he because he, it's an eccentric game, isn't it? I mean, we're all sat around here, ultimately talking about people trying to knock balls into holes. You know, and, and we enjoy watching that and talking about it and being around it. So um, yeah, uh, glad that uh, you're a fan of Dominic's, and he's working uh, this week for BBC Wales, and he'll be back with your support at the World Championship, and indeed the uh, Championship League, was, as was mentioned, he's been working on that as well. As I say, we've had other other um, emails. Why don't I tease? This could be the um, <laughs> this could be the uh, um, get it together. This could be the cliffhanger that I'm uh, promising. So I'm going to tease some of the subject matters. That people have written in about, okay, and uh, this will get this will get people well, well, to sleep until the next issue's out on Thursday. We've got here um, someone's written in. Uh, they created a Google Google map showing the locations of billion equipment manufacturers and snooker halls in Birmingham and the surrounding areas. Now that doesn't keep you coming back for the next e- next edition. What will? We've had an email here from a friend in San Diego about cues. Uh, yeah, talking about cues. Um, we've had uh, someone asking about uh, how the safety stats, safety success stats are worked out. I've had a couple of people asking that, actually. Um, and what else have we had? Uh, we've had um, a very uh, clear sort of uh, rundown of who might win the uh, World Championship. So lots of things, uh, lots of things people have written in about. 
And as I say, there's still time. If you want to get in contact before Thursday, uh, there's still time to uh, well, to do exactly that. So, um, snookerscenepodcast.mail.com is the address. Just want to, um, before we finish, uh, two things. We'll come to the announcement in a moment, but uh, send my best wishes to David Grace, who's pulled out of the Welsh Open for personal reasons. And David uh, would not pull out of a tournament unless he absolutely had to. So I uh, hope all is well and look forward to seeing you back soon. The big news of the day is, uh, it's just been announced today, is a new ranking event in Saudi Arabia. It was quite um, heavily trailed this, but we didn't have any details. We do have the details now. It's uh, a tournament that's going to be in Riyadh in, uh, well, end of August through first week of September. The Saudi Arabia Snooker Masters. And the total prize fund is just over two million. Now, for context, well, it says over two million. We don't know the exact figure. For context, the World Championship is about 2.4 million. So it's going to be very, very close to the World Championship in terms of prize money. I expect the first prize to be similar. Um, so it's a very prestigious event. And in the press release, Will Snooker Tour say that it will be, well, they are designating it as Snooker's fourth major to go alongside the World UK Championship and the Masters. Um, this is a 10-year deal. This is one of the biggest deals Snooker's ever done. Let's be clear about that in terms of the prestige, in terms of the money. This is one of the biggest deals Snooker has ever done. Um, it establishes the game in that part of the world, in the Middle East, with all the investment they have. It's paired with the World Pool Championship as well, which is going to be in Jeddah. That's another matchroom operation. The World Nine Ball Tour um, has really taken off under the auspices of Emily Fraser from Matchroom. And they are now playing for money they just couldn't couldn't have imagined at one point. It's a million dollars prize money for them. Snooker, as I say, two million pounds plus. Um, and yeah, next season open to all tour players. Six Saudi wildcards as well. So there were some complaints from lower rank players, rather hasty complaints. Let's be honest about the invitation event in March not being open to them. Well, this one is. And if anyone moans about this, I mean, I'll be interested to see. If any players do complain about this, because I'd like to know what, on what grounds they would. I'm sure some of them will find a way of do, doing so, because they can moan about anything, some of them. But for them, this is good news. It's a big money event, a new tournament that's established on the circuit for 10 years. And I'll say this, if snooker wants to go places, genuinely go places like other sports do, then these are the sort of deals it needs to be doing. Simple as that. Because it's the, the deals other sports are doing. We, we sometimes have this exceptionalist attitude that we're sort of above all this. Well, we're not. We're competing for the same pounds and, and dollars as everybody else. And this event is going to be absolutely massive. Of course, what, what it means for the Triple Crown, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you can have a Triple Crown and another Major. Surely they've got to rebrand the whole Major thing, haven't they? Call them Grand Slams, if you want, like in tennis, or just Majors, like in golf. If you're going to designate, designate this as a Major, then how could there also be a Triple Crown? I don't really get that. But anyway, that's a, that's a real side issue. Uh, this is a, a big moment really for the sport in terms of going forward it's going to tip prize money towards certainly we haven't got the full calendar yet but with the new Chinese event as well I'm pretty sure it'll be over 20 million it's going to be something like 19 ranking events next season it's going to be a very very busy campaign um, we haven't got the calendar but we have got this announcement so big news a 10 year deal for a ranking event in Riyadh um, pretty incredible really and uh, I'm sure the players will be uh, already making sure they've not booked a holiday for that week because that is a tournament they're going to want to be in and want to win. And I guess, uh, as it stands, that I mean, you look at the UK Championship, 
the prize money is going to be kind of almost double the UK Championship. So it's going to be a tournament that everyone's going to target. So we'll have more reaction, I'm sure, to that uh, in the next episode. It's only two days away. Um, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network in the meantime. Um, there's no real cliffhanger, obviously, but uh, do come back next time. Otherwise, I'll just be talking to myself. And as we always say, uh, goodbye-bye. Because that is what we always say. And if people don't know why, don't worry about it. Sports Social Podcast Network.